A recent toddler birthday party took me and my family to Tampa's Firefighters Museum. I watched Eva and Judd amazed as they entered a real fire truck, and as I watched my two-year-old marvel at one firefighter in his uniform. For the first time in a long time, I pictured something that I never actually saw: my papa, my grandfather on my mom's side, in his. Fireman's uniform. He had retired by the time I was born, meaning the only uniform I ever actually saw him in was his preferred around-the-apartment attire, boxers and an undershirt. <laughs> and while he died of a brain tumor when I was only seven years old, the way my mom lit up when she talked about him ensured that, as Rabbi Farb spoke about last night, his legacy would far outlive his passing. Through me, my brother, and my cousins. Now, all families have family lore, stories that are told that may or may not be true, but the important role that they've played in our families cannot be disputed. On my papa's side, I learned that his father had been a baker, supposedly the first to sell pumpernickel bread west of the Mississippi River. He had been born on the East Coast. And moved west with his brother to find new opportunities, ultimately settling in Utah. His brother would remain there, and yes, I have Mormon cousins. And my great grandfather would eventually move to Denver, where he would meet my great grandmother, where my papa would be born. But there's one piece of family lore that is the story I've always pictured when I've imagined my papa in his uniform. As my mom told the story, many. Many times, a smile always beaming across her face, my papa arrived on that fateful day to the Denver Country Club, responding to a fire. He stopped at the front door of the club, and when he was greeted with directions to the fire, he stayed at the front door, silent. "Come this way!" they yelled several times, and in my imagining of the story. Thirty seconds would have felt like hours to that man at the door, before my papa replied, "I'm not allowed." Of course you're allowed, he would have answered. You're the fireman. There's a fire. Of course you're allowed. I'm Jewish, he responded, and I'm not allowed inside. After which, he would have entered the club, and done his job. And so I stood there watching Judd and Eva, imagining telling them the story one day, and I wished that I could call my mom to tell her, to send her pictures of them in the fire truck. My mom passed away two and a half years ago, just before Judd was born, and I knew that this story was part of her legacy as well. So I called my aunt, my mom's sister, to tell her about Judd and Eva, and I mentioned the story. That's not what happened," she told me. <laughs> First of all, it was the Denver Athletic Club, <laughs> and no Jews weren't allowed. But it was at some point during the rescue that one of Papa's colleagues looked at him and yelled, "Hey, Sussman, you're not even allowed in here, are you?" <laughs> It's not quite the stoic stance that I had heard before. And I have to admit, at first, I was very disappointed and hopeful that somehow my mom's version was still true. 
But the conversation got me interested, and so I Googled Denver Athletic Club Fire. Sure enough, February 17, 1951, a fire broke out in the second floor gymnasium at the athletic club. Firefighters fought ice outside, that's frozen water on the sidewalk for all you <laughs> Floridians. They fought through the ice outside before fighting the flames and smoke inside. Four people had been killed in the fire. One firefighter had a heart attack and others were injured. And as I thought through it, of course, my papa hadn't stopped at the door. He had a 10-month-old baby home at the time, my mom, and he ran into a place in which otherwise he never would have been welcome, risking his life in order to save theirs. I called my aunt to share the news. I'm guessing your version is the one, I posited. But then she shared another detail that she had remembered since my first phone call. When my papa first joined the fire department, his new colleagues had also let him know that he wasn't fully wanted, painting a swastika on his locker and filling his boots with water during his training. He would ultimately earn their trust, respect, and admiration, but he had to work harder to earn it than others. A story I had always thought of as if it were a scene in a sitcom suddenly became very real and not at all funny. And only now was I realizing how truly amazing it is that my grandfather, after serving in the Navy at the end of World War II, came home from service only to literally run into fires every day. And while the details may be different from the lore I was told, I know that I have a truly inspiring story to tell my children one day. In fact, as I think about my grandparents and their parents, I have a lot of stories to tell my children one day. My Nana's father, my mom's grandfather, or Baba, grew up in Poland, in a village right on the Russian border. He escaped service in the Russian army before World War I. At 16, he lied, saying he was 14, sneaking his way into a group of child refugees who were being sponsored by a rabbi in Galveston, Texas. Again, inspired to Google, I found that it was Rabbi Henry Cohen and Congregation B'nai Israel, a reform synagogue, whose Galveston movement would bring over 10,000 Jewish immigrants to Texas between 1907 and 1914. My great-grandfather's family remained in Russia, and all of them who survived World War I would be killed by the Nazis 30 years later. Having survived two years of Nazi oppression, they were ultimately shot on a death march in 1942. My mom's baba worked hard back in Texas. Family lore said that he was a pioneer, perhaps the first to sell last year's styles of name brands for less, the precursor to TJ Maxx and Ross, but not the founder. Um, I would have known that. <laughs> He met his Southern Belle in Texas, my great-grandmother, and while my Nana told me stories of my Baba creating and sustaining an Orthodox minion out of their living room, my Nana would grow up far more Southern Belle than Russian immigrant. She is the one from whom I learned to say y'all, 
and she even played Mary in the Christmas play. That would be the life that she would try to create for my mom and her sister in Colorado. Three out of four of my great-grandparents on my mom's side were at least second-generation Americans. And in the end, my mom grew up in a family that could relate to the sitcoms of the 50s and 60s, as well as just about any Jewish family at the time. But at the same time, I knew that my dad's parents' story had been no sitcom. They both grew up in Vienna, a few blocks from one another, although they didn't know each other. My Omi was born in 1924 into an affluent family. Her father was the distributor of Hummel figurines for all of Vienna, according to family lore. And while she heard her parents talking about Hitler and Nazis, she heard them no differently than my Nana would have heard them in Texas, as most children would hear their parents talking about the news. She wasn't afraid. She felt protected. She was protected until the threat became real to her on the day she was told by her teacher that as a Jewish child, she was a guest in her class and an unwelcome one at that. Her family had been living a very comfortable life, beyond comfortable, until what they had was no longer theirs, including their place in what they thought was their home. Miraculously, my Omi's life was saved as she was sent by her parents to Sweden on the kinder transport, and back I went to Google, learning that what was called the 1927 Aliens Act, aiming to protect jobs for Swedish citizens and keep unwanted groups of people from settling in Sweden, listed Jews as one of the categories of unwanted immigrants. This was a time, by the way, when 83% of Americans also opposed allowing additional European refugees to enter the country. After much work, the Swedish Jewish community convinced its government to lift its ban a bit, allowing 500 Jewish children, who they had to promise would not remain for long. And while most were from Germany, somehow my Omi made it there as well. Her parents were eventually shot by the Nazis outside their home, our family always thankful that they never went to a camp. But at least they knew in their dying that their daughters would survive, something that so many victims of the Holocaust could not say. She lived as a refugee in Sweden for six years until the war ended and she was able to move to New York, sponsored by a cousin. My opa didn't tell many stories about himself. He told stories about everything else. But I do know that he moved to the US with his mother. His father was not Jewish and had left them as soon as being with them put his life at risk. My opa immediately enlisted in the American army where he injured and lost sight in one eye, hit by a bullet that was half an inch away from taking his life. He met Myomi after the war, introduced by one's cousin and the other's friend. They married and opened a store at 185th and Broadway until 1954 when they received a postcard from a friend saying and showing how beautiful Colorado was. So they sold their store, packed up their things and my three-year-old dad and drove to Colorado where my grandfather would work in retail, ultimately as I knew and loved him, 
working in the housewares department at what was the May Company, then May DNF, then Foley's. He retired before it became Macy's, but we still got his employee discount. <laughs> Myomi worked as a dressmaker from home, close to our home. So when I was growing up, their home was my home. And every time I had a day off from school or was sick, that's where I went. Eva is her namesake, and she was remarkable. I watched her go to night school to get her GED just so that she would be allowed to volunteer as a reading assistant at my cousin's elementary school. She and my opa spent every Sunday morning of their retirement not only making but delivering peanut butter sandwiches to Denver's homeless. And every Thursday at 11, she would escort young women past protesters at a Planned Parenthood clinic. This was the only time of her week that she was unavailable to her grandchildren. Five people had been killed in three separate shootings at abortion clinics in less than two years when she started volunteering. But as a 70-year-old Jewish woman from Vienna who didn't fully know why she was here and so many others weren't, she felt that she had a responsibility to do the things that she felt were important, even if they meant a risk to her. This is the first time I've ever told these four stories side by side. And as I do, thinking of the even bigger stories that these small tidbits represent, I recognize the extremely important role that each of these stories had in creating me. These are my grandparents and the people who made them, whose choices turned them into the people they would become, and in so many miraculous ways made it possible for them to survive in order to be the people they would become and to become the parents of my parents, the two people who would shape and form me. As I tell the story of my grandparents, it is my parents' story and it is my story as well. And I don't think they're remarkable. I mean, of course I think that they're remarkable, but they're not any more remarkable than any of your stories. And I hope that as I shared my stories, your minds were wandering. How did you end up in this sanctuary, in this chair today? What's your story? your parents' story, your grandparents' and great-grandparents' story? What obstacles did they overcome? How did they survive when perhaps they shouldn't have? Some most likely were very similar to parts of mine. And as a diverse community, many of whom never had family in Europe or Russia at any point, your stories may have been very different from mine. Yet, I would guess that regardless of the continent or the religion, our stories all share so much, even as they're all so vastly different from one another. I'm always honored to be with a family as they're remembering a loved one, learning their stories and their family's stories. But it doesn't take a funeral. I would love to hear more of your stories and your family's stories as well, and look forward to many, many meetings with all of you over the coming years to get to know you and your families better. I had talked to my Omi a lot about her story, but I had never really asked my Nana about growing up in the 30s and 40s and what, if any, anti-Semitism she had faced in America. 
I asked my aunt how she thought anti-Semitism played a role in my Nana and Papa's life and in her and my mom's life as they were growing up. Really, not at all, was her answer. I was surprised to hear that. After all, as we reflect on our past year as a wider Jewish community, we are concerned about a rise in anti-Semitism, and we should be. Last year, according to ADL reports, there were 1,879 acts of anti-Semitism in America, one of the highest numbers since the ADL started keeping track of these incidents in 1979. 1,000 acts of harassment, 774 incidents of vandalism, one of which was at one of our middle schools, Another found by one of our congregants in the parking garage of her condo building. 39 were violent with 59 victims, including the 11 lives that were needlessly taken at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, marking the deadliest attack on the Jewish community on U.S. soil. One act of anti-Semitism is too many, and of course, we need to be concerned. So why, at least in my aunt's memory, were my grandparents not concerned when my papa had a swastika painted on his locker by his coworkers, when their neighbors went to a club in which they weren't allowed because they were Jewish? There were almost 2,000 acts of reported anti-Semitism in the country last year, but how many thousands belonged to that club and hundreds of thousands to clubs like it throughout the country, entering their doors? okay with the fact that their Jewish neighbors and friends could not. Even as my nana and papa grew up with and built a very comfortable life in America, they knew that there was a barrier that was either keeping them from getting where they wanted to be, or at least making it really, really difficult, or at the very least, hearing about it as jokes or snide comments all the time. My guess would be that they were more concerned than my mom or my aunt knew, but they knew that they had it so much better than so many others. They weren't the only ones who weren't allowed into those clubs, and their life was far easier than others. They hadn't gone through what my dad's parents had gone through, so who were they to complain? My four grandparents had very different stories and very different exposure to hatred. But both built families and homes in Denver, knowing that they were bringing their children into a situation that was better than anything in any of their immediate memories. Yes, there were still clubs that they weren't allowed into, but my parents grew up in a world in which they were safe and they knew they were safe. And while the grown-ups in their lives may have known that something could happen to change that at any time, they didn't think about it all the time, and their children didn't know it all. And I grew up in a world in which there was nothing I couldn't do because I was Jewish. To be honest, I remember more comments criticizing my Judaism from Jewish classmates who called my Reform synagogue the Jewish church or Temple Emmanuel than I do from anyone who wasn't Jewish. I enjoyed watching South Park as much as anyone, in some ways, perhaps naively, seeing the Jewish jokes next to the everyone jokes as a sign of how far we've come, rather than a concern of what others watching might take from it. 
I still feel, as I hope we all do, that there is nothing I can't do or my children can't do because we're Jewish. And let me be clear, anti-Semitism is a concern. Everyone should read Deborah Lipstadt's book titled Anti-Semitism Here and Now to understand the historical context of the situation we face today from all directions. Progressives, nationalists, and jihadists in Europe, in the United Kingdom, and in America. To hear and see American politicians from both parties who are publicly using anti-Semitic tropes and images in speeches and tweets that are similar to those my grandparents would have seen in America and in Nazi Europe scares me. And just because it's not as bad as it was in the past, or as it currently is in Europe, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned. We can be grateful for what we have without becoming irresponsibly comfortable. And we also have to remember that we are not alone in our fears. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, racism is a philosophy based on a contempt for life. Racism is total estrangement. It separates not only bodies, but minds and spirits. Inevitably, it descends to inflicting spiritual and physical homicide upon the outgroup. Today, while our story is and will always be a unique one, just about everyone has been a target. Anyone can see themselves as the outgroup. The attacks that we've seen, both physical and emotional, in the streets and online, increasing or at least becoming louder against our community and against every community, against African Americans, against Muslims, against Hispanics, against immigrants, against gays and lesbians, against women, against humanity. Whatever the motive, whether by a sick individual or a sick group, they exist because of a contempt for life, a lack of ability to understand and appreciate the stories and the miracles of survival that allow anyone to exist today. And while almost all of these attacks have been the result of individuals, and I believe still represent an extremely small minority of our country, they also represent a societal contempt that seems to be growing. Lipstadt reminds us that our Jewish story does not exist in isolation. She writes, the existence of prejudice in any of its forms is a threat to all those who value an inclusive, democratic, and multicultural society. Anti-Semitism flourishes in a society that is intolerant of others, be they immigrants or racial and religious minorities. When expressions of contempt for one group become normative, it is virtually inevitable that similar hatred will be directed at other groups. Like a fire set by arsonists, passionate hatred and conspiratorial worldviews reach well beyond their intended target. They are not rationally contained. No healthy society harbors extensive anti-Semitism or any other form of hatred. It so often comes back to Hillel's eternal paradox but I feel in today's world we need that reminder as often as we can get it. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? 
If I am only for myself, what am I? Jewish survival through so many trials in each of our individual histories and in our greater communal history requires us to, above all else, ensure our own survival and our Jewish survival and, at the same time, to recognize that in that survival comes an extremely important responsibility to the rest of the world and to the future of that world far beyond any of our families, any of our children, and our community as Jews. I understand that concern for self is what led to my Omi and Opa's survival and my Baba's survival. And concern for self from others is what kept the number of those saved from being higher, keeping so many like my Omi, Opa, and Baba from having their lives saved as well. My papa risked his life in order to provide for his family first, a family that he would have saved first in any fire. But he then would have gone back to risk his life in order to save every other life he could in those fires, not asking where they were from, why they were there, or what they thought about him before he did. As I look at the world today, I understand those who put self-protection above all else. It's a scary world right now. And I understand those who look at the others and see themselves or their families, fighting for everyone who they feel has no one to fight for them, and fighting as if each of them were their own child. How to find that all-important balance is to answer Hillel's third question. If not now, when? As we enter this new year of 5780, may we look to our past to understand our stories, to share our stories, to appreciate how each of us got here. And just as we learn that God understands each of us fully and intimately as we are judged on these days, before we judge another for believing differently, for voting differently, for sitting in a very different world than we do, may we understand that each life has its own story, a path that brought them to their place as well. Maybe we could even ask them to share it. And as we inevitably will face more horrific news, may we all commit ourselves that as we strive to ensure that our families and our Jewish family will not only survive but thrive, we also strive to ensure that others are able to find the same opportunities that we have had and continue to have. May we continue to move forward as I believe our society in so many ways has moved forward tremendously since 95 years ago when my Omi and Papa were both born. May we move forward toward a world of acceptance, of understanding, of willingness to appreciate all of the stories that make each of us who we are. May we move forward toward a world of peace.